That was a good segue. All right, cool. Uh, so for those who don't know me, uh, my name is Alan Michael Sprinkle, and I'm the children's and the college pastor here at Grace. And I absolutely love what I do here. Um, and so uh, this morning, we are going to be finishing up a very short series uh, of Ezekiel. That's where we've been. And last week, you heard Jerry preach from Ezekiel chapter 36. And the title of his sermon was, When You Embarrass God. So last week, if you were in here, your toes most likely got stepped on. And if they didn't, that's because you weren't listening or you weren't here. So, so I would strongly recommend that you go uh, and listen to his sermon. I know you, some of you are probably thinking, why would I want to go listen to a sermon that's entitled, When I Embarrass God? Uh, but, but the passage that he preached in the sermon itself was, was so rich. Uh, and, and that passage is a precursor to what we're going to be talking about uh, this morning. I'm going to be in Ezekiel uh, chapter 37 this morning, as you heard read just a minute ago. The title of my sermon is called Behold I. Behold I. Usually I don't really say what the title of my sermon is going to be um, because for several reasons, but this morning I want to tell you what uh, the sermon title is because of its relevance to the passage. Uh, the words, behold, I, occur twice in this passage, both of them right before God does something miraculous. Both of them right before God does something miraculous. Now, we have all witnessed something miraculous in our lifetime, whether we've seen it up close and personal or whether we have seen it on YouTube or on television. We, we've heard a story of something miraculous. And when we see or hear of, of a miracle that has occurred, we know the feeling that we get when it happens. We, we get this, this breathtaking feeling, this awe-inspiring euphoria that comes when something unexplainable happens. We would consider a miracle someone maybe who is battling cancer and, and they're losing the battle, but then all of a sudden with no scientific reason and with no medical reasoning, the, the cancer just goes away. That's what we would consider a miracle and so we would praise God for, for his healing and his provision in this situation. And we could look to scripture. I, when I was thinking about it, I was thinking about, man, what is a miracle in scripture that I, re, that I remember reading about or know about? And it takes me all the way back to the book of Exodus when, when God was leading the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Pharaoh had finally let them leave. So they're, they're leaving, they're going out, and they come to a big block in the road called the Red Sea. They weren't sure what they were going to do. Pharaoh and the Egyptians were hot on their tail. And so Moses sticks his, his staff into the water. And then the water just splits in half and they safely go across to the other side. I was imagining, what if I would have witnessed that? That's a miracle. <laughs> I would be stunned. I would have this, I would be awe-inspired. I would have been breathtaken in this moment. And we read about this story and we know the story and we want to thank God for his provision in leading his people out of the hands of the Egyptians. We look at miracles and we undoubtedly see the hand of God in them. We do. But yet, even though we know how powerful God is, that he can do these things, we still go through seasons in our life where we wonder where God is. Where is he right now in my current situation? I know he can do it. 
but where is he? I know that, that he is the God who can do these things, and maybe you're sitting in here this morning, and you have, you're feeling very distant from God. Maybe you're sitting in here, and, and your circumstances, whatever you're going through right now, have clouded your, your spiritual compass. And so you're in a hopeless season right now, maybe of grief, maybe you're sitting in here of loss, depression. And you're thinking if the God who can, who can cure cancer at will, the God who can lead the people of Israel out of slavery to part the Red Sea to deliver them, where is he with me right now? Where could he be? How, how could that God love me where I am right now? And so maybe you're also uh, sitting in here, and maybe it's not your circumstances that have clouded your spiritual compass, but maybe it is your sin. Maybe you're in the, here this morning, and you have a recognition of sin in your life. And so you're here, and you're repentant, and you're trying to make amends with those whom you, have, you may have hurt in the process. And so you're sitting in here wondering, knowing full well your sin, knowing what you have done, and are sitting here wondering, how could that God forgive me? How could that God love me? And if that's you this morning, I just want to say, welcome to the club. Welcome. You're sitting in a room full of people who are thinking the same thing. Knowing full well my sin, how could he love me? None of us deserve this love, but by the grace of God, he gives it. And he doesn't leave us on our own. He is here for us. So we're going to be in Ezekiel 37 this morning. The main idea of this passage is that spiritual life requires the breath of life. Spiritual life requires the breath of life. So this is a pretty popular passage that many of you may have heard before, but it is the, the valley of the dry bones. And in this passage, there are two instances where God does something pretty miraculous. One was a, is a physical miracle, and the other is a promise in a hopeless situation. And for the Israelites, it would have seemed like a miracle. But the great thing about this passage, I'm telling you, I, I, uh, I got my hair cut this past week, and uh, Danielle Becker cuts my hair, and I uh, uh, was just, I was like on day two of sermon prep for this, and I was just, like, the passage is so rich that, like, the entire time I was sitting in her chair, I preached this whole sermon to her, like, and it was like an hour and a half. But don't worry, I've cut it down. We're not going to be here for an hour and a half, but this passage is really, really, really so rich. As, as I was, I'm very aware of this passage, but it wasn't until this week that I realized that this passage not only gives us a, a glimpse of God's love, but it points us all the way back to Genesis, to creation, but then at the same time points us all the way to Revelation 22. This story points you to all of Scripture. And so this morning we're going to take quite a little bit of a journey backwards to the beginning and then to the future that is to come. So just, just strap in, sit tight, we're going to do this, all right? So uh, not only are we going to do that, but we're going to see how even the smaller stories that we see in Scripture uh, play into the greatest story ever told, which is Jesus. 
That's what this passage is gonna, is gonna get to get tell about. So I'm gonna uh, give you a quick snapshot of where Israel is in this passage. All right, so the people of Israel, uh, they are in exile. And the kingdom is split into a, a northern kingdom and to a southern kingdom. So the northern kingdom is referred to as Israel. And then the southern kingdom is known as Judah, the people of Judah. So Ezekiel uh, and Jeremiah, uh, who also has a book in the Old Testament, uh, they both uh, are contemporaries in uh, prophesying to the people of Judah. Uh, and the people of Judah are not an easy people to prophesy to. Uh, so where they find themselves right now is they are under siege of Babylon. That's where they are. Uh, king Nebuchadnezzar is the king who is ruling over Babylon. And every time I think of Nebuchadnezzar, I think of VeggieTales and the cucumber who always wears the tie with the white hair. Am I right? Like, is anybody else there? there? Yeah, so anytime I see Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible, I go straight to VeggieTales. Like, I have no idea what the man really looked like, uh, but I always <laughs> picture the cucumber. So, uh, but he, he is an ungodly, unruly king. Not a nice man. And so he is ruling over uh, Babylon. And so king after king, the, the, the people of Judah were going through king after king, and it seemed like one of them would die. One of them would be taken captive. Another one would die. And they just kept going through king after king after king after king with no continuity of leadership. They were, at this point in the story, they have been under siege of Babylon for almost 12 years. 12 years. That's a long time. Where they are right now is that they're hopeless. They have a feeling of hopelessness that they cannot get out of this. Ezekiel's trying to prophesy to them. The people of Judah did not want to listen. They did not want to listen to Jeremiah. As a matter of fact, the book of Lamentations was written by Jeremiah out of a place of depression because of the enormity of the task it was to prophesy to the people of Judah. They were not easy. They did not want to listen. And so in chapter 36, we, we, we heard about uh, their sins. So here, chapter 37, God gives Ezekiel a vision. So I have two truths this morning. Both truths uh, have to deal with the breath of life. All right, so our first truth this morning is that the breath of life defies impossibility. The breath of life defies impossibility. So uh, when I was younger, I used to be, I used to really love uh, magic and magicians and illusionists. And there was this one illusionist who I watched a lot. His name was Chris Angel. So maybe, maybe he was kind of conceited. I'm going to be real. Okay, his name is Chris Angel. But I, I would watch this guy and he would do tricks that like were just so unexplainable to me. There was this one time where I was watching on TV and he was in Las Vegas and he pulled this woman to the side and he said, do you have any cash on you? Which is a strange thing to ask someone right there, right? So she pulled out a $100 bill. People, I don't know. I don't know why you would give a $100 bill to a stranger, but she did. She gave him this $100 bill and, she, and he said, I want you to sign your name on it and give it back to me. So she did. She signed her name. She gave it right back to him. This is what the man did. Live TV. Obviously, it was real. He ripped it up, ripped up the $100 bill, and then he swallowed it. I couldn't believe it. This man just did that. She could not believe he just did that. All the people on the Vegas Strip could not believe 
that he just ripped up and swallowed a $100 bill. So he's trying to break the tension, obviously. So he takes her through a stroll through the strip of Las Vegas, and they come to uh, like a produce stand just full of fruit, just this, this wide array of fruit everywhere. And he said, I want you to pick a fruit, any fruit that you want, just pick one and bring it back to me. So the camera follows her over there, and she's, she's sifting through all the fruit, and like, which one do I want? Okay, so she digs to the bottom at random and picks up an orange, the very bottom of the stack, this orange. I'm going to bring it back to Chris Angel. So she brings it back. This man cuts the orange open, and if the $100 bill with her signature wasn't perfectly rolled up in the middle of that orange, I, for days, for days, was like trying to figure out how on earth this man did that. The signature was perfect. It was exactly how she had signed it. I could not figure it out. Literally for days, I was wondering, I was telling all my friends at school, like you don't know this man, Chris Angel, has real magic people, like he did this. But why? Because things that are unexplainable fascinate us. They intrigue us. There's a mystery to it that, that gives us a sense of, of like, oh man, I can't understand it. So it's really, really cool, even though I really want to understand it. And so in this passage, we see something that is impossible, but God shows up for it. I'm gonna read for you verses one through 10. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. Now remember here, this is Ezekiel speaking. I want you to imagine Ezekiel is, is saying this. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, uh, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews upon them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. See, this was a vision that God had given uh, Ezekiel, and I want you to imagine with me for a second, uh, this is all coming from Ezekiel's perspective. So he's taken out in this huge valley. This valley is not just dry. It's not just desolate. This valley is full of bones, dead skeletons. There's no flesh on them. There's no, there's no skin. There's nothing. It is absolutely just dead, dry, bleached bones out there in this place. 
Now, this, is, this was probably a necessary vision for Ezekiel. Why? Because Ezekiel was a priest. Ezekiel knew the importance of taking care of corpses for proper burial. So now he stands in this valley of slain people who didn't have a proper burial. And he even says it. He doesn't just say that the bones were, were very, very dry. He actually says, and then God led me among them and around them. He's, he's remembering this scene that, that he would remember, that was necessary for him to remember as he's walking through them, seeing this skeleton, seeing this skeleton, seeing this skeleton. Then God asks him what seemingly rhetorical question, can these bones live? Well, we have to understand these bones had been dead for a, a long time. Right? The, the natural order of a body is that it dies and then it, it decomposes over time. All the, all the things that it says happened right here go off away gradually. These bones were dry and by themselves. That means there was nothing left on them, which means that they had been dead for a really, really long time. So the idea of coming back to life was not foreign to Ezekiel or the people of Israel. There are several occasions in the book of Kings where people died and came back to life, but the, life, the span of time between uh, death and life was not very long. They still had flesh, they still had blood in them. And so it was like, okay, well, they can come back to life, right? But these bones have been dead for such a long time, there's nothing left for them to be alive. In Tennessee, we call it dead, dead. They are dead, dead. That's what they are. This question, though, doesn't seem impossible if you know the story of God. It doesn't seem that impossible. But if you know the natural order, the way things decompose, the natural order of life, you know that that's impossible. So let me ask you this with the question, can these bones live? I want to ask you this question. Where you are right now, can you handle your current situation alone? Wherever you are, whether it's depression, whether it's loneliness, marital separation, this question seems like a no-brainer, obviously. But the, the point of this question is to get you to, to, to realize that without God, it's impossible. On your own, it's impossible. But God defies impossibility. He asks this question to Ezekiel to show the magnitude of what was about to happen. Ezekiel responds very well, very smart. <laughs> Didn't want to make a fool of himself. Oh, Lord God, you know. <laughs> That's what he said. Oh, Lord God, you know. See, what Ezekiel is saying is that if there is one person that could answer this question and deliver on this question, it is God alone. The only one who can answer and deliver is God. You see, it is never whether God has the power to do it. It is whether God wills to do it. It is never whether God has the power to do it. It is whether God wills to do it. So let me explain. So this music stand that's right in front of me, it's pretty lightweight. Uh, I could, uh, if I took, I would take my Bible and my Kindle off, obviously, but, but I, could th I could probably throw this thing 
into the middle of this section right here. I'm not going to, by the way, so don't like think that I'm going to. Uh, but if I, if I wanted to, I could. I have the power to do it. I could throw it, plumb, I don't know, probably row six. Probably not row seven, though. I'm not that strong. But, but I could probably get it out there. You see, the, the, the fact is, it's not whether or not I can do it. It's whether or not I want to do it. Do I want to do it? So it is with God. It's not whether he has the power. It's whether he wills to do it, which is extremely reassuring, yet sometimes so confusing. It can be so confusing. If God can, why doesn't he? It's probably a question that we all have struggled with at some point. If he can do it, why not? Why? Why does he let cancer win? Why does he allow babies and children to die? Why does he allow sin to reign in our hearts? Why does he allow Satan to tempt us into situations? Why? See, as Ezekiel said this, oh Lord God, you know, it might have been easy for him to say that, but we go through seasons of our life where it's not easy to say the phrase, oh Lord God, you know. We cannot agree that we don't understand. We want to know so bad the mystery, the impossibility of something. We want to know why we can't know. Isaiah 55 tells us, though, that God speaks. Your ways are not my ways, and your thoughts are not my thoughts. One truth that we can't forget, though, is how God sent Jesus, though. If there was ever a time where God had the power to do something and he followed through, it was by sending his son Jesus to die for us on the cross. I should never forget the unfailing love of the father who would give his only son for humanity. I, I can't understand that kind of love. I can't, I can't understand how much he must love me. What level of love is there that God would send his only son, Jesus, to die for a, a sinner, a wretch like me? And the answer is, oh, Lord God, you know, because I can't. I cannot know that kind of love. So God told Ezekiel to prophesy to the bones. He says this, verse 5, thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. So the Hebrew word for breath is ruach. I want to say that word out loud because this isn't the only time in this passage that this word comes up. So the Hebrew word for breath is ruach. So he prophesies to the bones. Now he's, he's prophesying to something dead here. Something that is dead. He is actually prophesying to bones. And he gets this visual picture as he prophesies to the bones. He he says it's like the bones, they begin to move. They, they, they began to, to come together. They were rattling together. But then all of a sudden, not only did they come together, that, that muscles and tendons, everything started to appear. And then, and then skin covered these bodies. It was amazing. But there was still one thing that was missing. They weren't breathing. They looked alive. They looked like humans. But they weren't. So then he says, I was commanded to prophesy to the wind, to the breath, 
That's what he says in verse 10. So I prophesied. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. So he did what he was commanded, and he prophesied to the wind. And the wind came, went into the lungs of this great army, and then they took their second first breath. And then they stood up. And there they stood, alive. Something impossible. Can these bones live? Well, they did. Watches this miracle happen. But this is not the only instance in which God breathed life into something. If we look back in the book of Genesis. Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. You see, there was a point where Adam had skin, had flesh, human, but was yet alive, not yet alive, as God then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, making an impossibility become reality. That he created life, that he created something in his own image. So we see the breath of life defies impossibility. But what does, what does these first 10 verses, what do they even mean? If this is a vision, then what do they mean? Verse 11, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. So our second truth is that the breath of life brings restoration. The breath of life brings restoration. This whole vision is about the people of Israel in despair. They are hopeless. They are separated from each other. They have been overtaken. Their land, gone. Their homes, gone. Their families, killed. Their kings, killed. The temple had been destroyed. Their hope in God, after being 12 years captive, their hope in God is failing. That's where they find themselves. But if we look at this vision at face value, what God is not saying is that the spiritual climate of the people of Israel is dying. He says the spiritual climate of the people of Israel is dead. It's as dead as the dry bones in the valley. That's what he's saying. As dead as the dry bones. Why? Sin. Sin. Last week, Jerry preached it. Ezekiel 36. I'll read these verses for you again. Verses 16 through 21 in Ezekiel 36. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood 
that they had shed in the land for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through their countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord. And yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Some imagery that we see in this vision of the the dead dry bones points us back also to Deuteronomy when God told them that they would be cursed and that their bodies would be food for the birds. Imagery pointing back. So now they're being cursed. They are paying the consequences of their sin. Sin had led them to this point. But what we are about to see in this passage is the fulfillment of a covenant, okay? So, so I love covenants. I love the idea of what a covenant is. So yesterday, one of my best friends, Cameron, uh, was married in Graham Chapel up in Montreat, and we had the reception here. And so when Cameron and Laura were, were, were on the stage, I remember Cameron saying his vows, giving a covenant to Laura in front of God, in front of her, in front of everybody who was there. To which he said that I will love her, I will cherish her, in, in richer for poor, in sickness and in health, that I will be the spiritual leader of the household. Those are the promises that he made. To which Laura, in turn, made promises to Cameron of what she was going to be as a godly wife to him. This is a covenant that they made. Now, for those of us seasoned married people, <laughs> hey, look, I'm three and a half years in, okay? <laughs> for us seasoned married people, we know that we're going to mess up. We know we're going to fail in some of these areas. We know that we're going to make our spouse mad and say things that we're going to regret. We're going to get in fights. We're going to have to ask for forgiveness. We know we're going to mess up. But here's the idea of a covenant. The idea of a covenant is that when you mess up, when you break your half, I'm not going to break mine. I'm going to stick it through. I'm not going. It's different from a contract. Contract says if you break your end, I'm out. Covenant says that when you mess up, I'm staying. And so we look at this. We look at this. God is allowing them to go through this time, this season of punishment for their sins, where they are facing the consequences. But here's what God is not doing. He is not letting them no longer be his children. He's got a plan. He's not gone anywhere. He has a plan. He's going to rescue them. And he's going to keep his end of the bargain. Verses 12 through 14. Therefore prophesy and say to them, the people of Judah, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I. Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Notice that. O my people. They're still his children. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. 
and you shall, uh, you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. See, the breath of life brings restoration to someone who is spiritually dead. The breath of life brings restoration to, to someone who is spiritually dead. See, God was not planning to leave his people in this place for eternity. That was never the plan. The plan was to always come back and rescue his children. He says that I'm going to open up your graves. Literally saying, I'm going to bring you back to life. And then I'm going to bring you back into your own land. And he makes another promise here about bringing them into their own land that would reveal the divine power to, uh, to, for their deliverance from the Babylonians. This victory would not be obtained by the power of man, but by the will of God. He says, man, this is so rich. You shall know that I am the Lord. He says it twice in this section. Why? Because they're hopeless. Their temple has been destroyed. Homes are gone. They're, they're under a tyrant leader who cares nothing about them. They are in despair, wondering where he is. They feel as though God is so far away. He can't be close. Our sins have brought us here. There's no way that he could love us anymore because we've been here for 12 years. 12 years with no hope. There's no way he's coming back. God's saying, I'm gonna rescue you and you will know that I'm God. Contrast to what Ezekiel said. Oh Lord God, you know. So now God is saying, Here's what you will know. God is revealing to the people what they will know, that he is God. He's revealing to them that he is God. So there is a, there's obviously a huge gap of what we can know and what God can know. My, my son Christian, he'll be a year old this month. So my kid knows what the word no means, right? And all you parents say amen. <laughs> and he knows when I say no, that no means no. And yet he still does things <laughs> after I say no. So I have to admit to you guys, disciplining that adorable child is not easy. And some of you are probably thinking, look, kid, you're a year into this. <laughs> you have no idea. You know, you're right. This, this is my worst right now. Okay, this is it. I haven't had knockout, dragout fights with my kid yet. Like, this hasn't happened. But it's still not easy to discipline him. Like when he puts his, tries to put his finger in the electrical socket. And I tell him no. And then he looks at me and he goes, <laughs> right? Okay, no means no. And so I have to discipline him. And of course, he gives the face as if I shot his dog. Like, like I can't believe you betrayed me. No, kid. 
So here's what I know. Here's what I know. That I'm his dad. No means no. And I know that if he does this thing, he is going to be seriously injured. Right? He will get electrocuted, and he will not be happy. And we'll probably be in the hospital. Here's what he knows. That's my dad. And he said no. He obviously doesn't want me to do this thing, but I think I'm going to do it anyway because he doesn't know the repercussions of his actions. Right? So there's a gap between what Christian knows and what I know. So how much greater is the gap between what Christian and I know to what I and God know? How much greater is that gap? I cannot know his ways. I cannot know his thoughts. Because he is God. And he tells them that he will put his spirit in them so that they may live. Similar to earlier when he says that I will cause my breath to enter you and you shall live and you shall know that I am God. He says here that I will put my spirit in you so that you may live. And guess what the Hebrew word for spirit is? Ruach. Ruach. It's the same word for breath. The same breath that gives physical life gives spiritual life. The same breath that gives physical life gives spiritual life. And this is the breath that only comes from the Father. This is the same spirit that is given to the believer as they come to faith in Jesus Christ as he came and died once and for all and then he rose and when he rose from the dead he defeated death. He rose from the dead and then he ascended into heaven to which he is sitting at the right hand of God and when he did he left the Holy Spirit here left for us for those who feel hopeless. If you are sitting in here and you feel far from God If you are sitting in here and you can't see past your circumstances or you can't see past your sin, then let me tell you that you have to look no further than the God who gave you your physical breath right now. Because the same breath that gives physical life is the same breath that gives spiritual life. Look no further than God. For those whose sin reigns heavily and you're you're sitting in here and you're witnessing the consequences of your sin, please know that the people of Israel were also facing consequences of their sin. But then God made them a promise that he would make them come alive. It wasn't just rescue. It wasn't just, I'm going to bring you back to your land. I'm going to get you out of this situation. I'm going to put you over here. He said, I'm going to make you alive spiritually alive. That's what he's saying. The same breath that he was willing to give to them, he's willing to give to you. Why? Because although, yes, you may be seeing the consequences of your actions here on earth, he does not want you to see the consequences of your actions in eternity. By believing in Jesus, by putting your faith in him, you will be given the breath of life that brings restoration. That gives you spiritual life. How do I know? Verse, four, verse 14, Now I'll put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and you shall know that I'm the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. 
declares the Lord. There has never been a promise in Scripture that God has made that he didn't keep. Never. For I've spoken it, and I'll do it. For those, for those in here who you're struggling with, with God's will, or the phrase, oh Lord God, you know, then I, I want to refer back to the title, Behold I. Twice God makes this statement. This brings us back to the necessity of God's power and his will. This is only accomplished through his power. And I want to refer you to Revelation. Chapter 21, I'm going to read it for you real fast. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will, will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things, what? New. I am making all things new. And then he said, Write these things down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So as the praise band comes back out, we're going to close, we're going to have a time of invitation. But I do want to say, why God allows despair, why he allows pain, Why he allows you to go through certain situations, I don't know. I can't answer that question. But here's what I do know, that he is God. I do know that Jesus is on the throne. And I do know that he made a promise that he's gonna come back and he's gonna make everything new. That the despair, the pain that we feel will be no more. He said it. He'll do it. And I believe that. Father, you're so good. Lord, I'm just in awe of how great you are. You, you love us so much. And although our sin is heavy, you sent Jesus to die for us on the cross. You wouldn't let us go through this for eternity. No, you, you want to do something and so you decide to send Jesus so that when we put our faith in him that we would receive the breath of life that is forgiving, that is restoring, that is reconciling us back to you, Father. Lord, I praise you as we go into this time of invitation for those who are here, if they don't know you, then I pray that this morning would be the day that they do. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Our staff will be down here. If you need prayer for anything, uh, please come talk to us.